Welcome to the program In Persona Christi. Please join Bishop Fabian Bruskowitz of the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska, as he discusses the life and spirituality of a priest. Now, here is Bishop Fabian Bruskowitz. Lord, according to your promise that the gospel should be preached throughout the whole world, raise up men fit for such work. The apostles were but soft and yielding clay until they were baked hard by the fire of the Holy Spirit. So, good Lord, do now in like manner again with thy church militant. Change and make the soft and slippery earth into hard stones. Set in thy church strong and mighty pillars that may suffer and endure great labors such as watching, poverty, thirst, hunger, cold and heat, and who shall not fear the threatening of princes, persecution, neither death, but always persuade and think with themselves to suffer with a good will, slander, shame, and all kinds of torments for the glory and laud of thy holy name. By this manner, good Lord, the truth of thy gospel shall be preached throughout the world. Therefore, merciful Lord, exercise thy ministry. Show it indeed upon thy church. Amen. Shortly after the Second World War in the 1940s in New York, a new industry sprang up. Several factories were built. And the industry had to do with glow-in-the-dark items, especially watches and clocks, the faces of which were painted with a special paint that was touched with radium. Because this new technology meant good and fine jobs, a significant number of employees were hired by these factories. And they were indeed the envy of their neighbors. Fine-paying jobs and very little hard labor involved. Basically, it was taking little paintbrushes, dipping them into the paint, and touching and painting those items that were to glow in the dark. The people who undertook this work did so conscientiously and with great joy. To make those little paintbrushes more accurate, they would occasionally touch the tips of the paintbrushes to their tongues, enabling them to be more clear in the lines that were drawn by the paint. Little did these people know that the radium in the paint was fatal, lethal. Gradually, Symptoms of radiation disease afflicted everyone who worked in these factories. Their hair and teeth fell out. They became themselves debilitated and weak. And finally, every single person who worked in that industry died. This true happening is a parable for our time in some ways and a parable that calls attention to something that priests must be constantly aware of. The possibility 
that a materialistically satisfying culture might have within itself the germs, the possibility of fatal disease. It's exceptionally important then for priests always, but especially in moments of retreat, to look in upon themselves very carefully and with God's grace to judge conscientiously and judiciously what they may be teaching, which of course should be what they believe. Genuine teaching, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us, must be contemplata alis tradere, to give to others what one has contemplated. Certainly, the priest must filter through his experience and his personality and give to those to whom he preaches and teaches the benefit of God's word so colored. But this word of God should not and must not be sullied by the personality of the priest, nor by his foibles and sins, nor may it be sullied, or should it be, by the culture in which it is preached. This is why a priest must take most conscientiously what the Second Vatican Council says. The people of God finds its unity, first of all, through the word of the living God, which is properly sought from the lips of priests. Since no one can be saved who has not first believed, priests, as co-workers with their bishops, have as their primary duty the proclamation of the gospel of God to all. In this way, they fulfill the Lord's command, go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. Thus, they establish and build up the people of God. And so, a priest must be exceptionally careful to announce and proclaim the gospel in such a way, first, that it is attractive to people, but never substituting the truth, the integrity, and the fullness of the gospel message for the sake of this attractiveness. St. Gregory Nazianzens says to Priests, speaking of himself included, we must begin by purifying ourselves before purifying others. We must be instructed and be before we can be able to instruct. We must become light in order to illuminate, draw close to God to bring him close to others, be sanctified in order to sanctify, lead by the hand and counsel prudently. I know whose ministers we are, where we find ourselves and to where we strive. I know God's greatness and man's weakness, but also man's potential. Who then is a priest? He is a defender of the truth, who stands with angels, gives glory with archangels, causes sacrifices to rise to the altar on high, shares Christ's priesthood, refashions creation, restores it, restores it in God's image recreates it for the world on high, and even greater, he is one who is divinized and divinizes. It is the priest who is the vehicle of bringing God's supernatural life to others. And he does this in a preeminent way by proclaiming the gospel. The kerygma, 
the actual proclamation and then the didache, the content of that proclamation, the preaching. We all recognize as the theme of these retreat conferences the rhetorical question of Jesus. When the Son of Man comes again, will he find any faith on the earth? If faith comes from believing, and those who believe can only believe if they hear the word of God by those who are commissioned and sent to proclaim that word, then the answer to Christ's great question will rest in large measure on the work and on the labors of priests. We must be exceptionally careful in our time to be tender and cautious about proclaiming in a way that is intelligible to our modern culture uh, the word of God, and yet never mutilating, distorting, abbreviating, or in any substantial way changing that word of God. We would be not only shortchanging others, but doing grave damage to the church and to ourselves. This has happened past in past times. Cardinal Newman, in his idea of a university, speaking about the infidelity of his day, says this, It is a miserable time when a man's Catholic profession is no voucher for his orthodoxy. And when a teacher of religion may be within the church's pale, yet external to her faith, such as been for a season the trial of her children at various eras in her history, it was the state of things during the dreadful Arian ascendancy when the flock had to keep aloof from the shepherd and the unsuspicious fathers of the Western councils trusted and followed some consecrated sophist from Greece or Syria. It was the case in those passages of medieval history when simony resisted the supreme pontiff or when heresy lurked in the universities. It was a longer and more tedious trial when the controversies lasted with the Monophysites of old and the Jansenists in more recent times. How important it is for us to be aware then of the necessity of proclaiming the faith in its fullness and in its beauty. We do this, of course, by also proclaiming the paradoxes of this faith because Christianity is, in very large measure, a religion of paradox. There is, as we know, the shepherds who had to listen to angels in order to find a lamb at the birth of Christ, and wise men who had to follow a star in order to find wisdom. We saw at that very crib of Bethlehem the little baby whose hands could not reach the big heads of the cattle above the manger, but who himself with those hands made the sun and the stars. We see the paradox in a divine carpenter who is fastened to wood by nails, in the king of the universe who is crowned with thorns, in the author of life who gives supernatural life by dying. All of this paradox is part of what must be proclaimed in such a way that the world will say, it's so beautiful, I wish it were true. And then a priest must step in and say, ah, now I can tell you and show you that it is true. 
probably the best master of paradox in recent centuries, was the great English convert and writer Gilbert Keith Chesterton. Speaking about the integrity of the faith and its orthodoxy, he wrote in ways that are extraordinarily relevant even today. He said, this was the big fact about Christianity, the discovery of a new balance. Paganism had been like a pillar of marble, upright because proportioned with symmetry. Christianity was like a huge, ragged, and romantic rock, which though it sways on its pedestal at a touch, yet because of its exaggerated excrescences, exactly balance each other. It is enthroned there for a thousand years. In a Gothic cathedral, the columns are all different, but they're all necessary. Every support seemed an accidental and fantastic support. Every buttress a flying buttress. So in Christendom, apparent accidents balanced. Beckett wore a hair shirt under his gold and crimson, and there is much to be said for the combination. For Beckett got the benefit of the hair shirt, while the people in the street got the benefit of the crimson and gold. It is at least better than the manner of modern millionaires who have the black and the drab outwardly for others and the gold next to their hearts. But the balance was not always in one man's body as in Beckett's. The balance was often distributed over the whole of Christendom because a man prayed and fasted on the northern snows, flowers could be flung at a festival in southern cities. And because fanatics drank water on the sands of Syria, men could still drink cider in the orchards of England. This is what makes Christendom at once so much more perplexing and so much more interesting than the pagan empire, just as the Amiens Cathedral is not better but more interesting than the Parthenon. If anyone wants a modern proof of this, let him consider the curious fact that under Christianity, Europe, while remaining a unity, was broken up into individual nations. Patriotism is a perfect example of this deliberate balancing of one emphasis against another emphasis. The instinct of the pagan empire would have said you shall all be Roman citizens and grow alike. Let the German grow less slow and reverent, the Frenchman less experimental and swift. But the instinct of the Christian Europe says, let the German remain slow and reverent, that the Frenchman may more swiftly be experimental. Last and most important of all, it is exactly this which explains what is so inexplicable to all the modern critics of the history of Christianity. I mean, the monstrous wars about the small points of theology, the earthquakes of emotion about a gesture or a word. It was only a matter of an inch, but an inch is everything when you are balancing. The church could not afford to swerve a hair's breadth on some things if she was to continue her great and daring experiment of the irregular equilibrium. Once, let one idea become less powerful and some other idea would become too powerful. It was no flock of sheep the Christian shepherd was leading, but a herd of bulls and tigers, of terrible ideals and devouring doctrines, each one of them strong enough to turn to a false religion and lay waste the world. Remember that the church went in specifically for dangerous ideas. She was a lion tamer. The idea of a birth through a Holy Spirit, of the death of a divine being, 
of the forgiveness of sins or the fulfillment of prophecies or ideas which anyone can see need but a touch to turn them into something blasphemous or ferocious. The smallest link was let drop by the artificers of the Mediterranean and the lion of ancestral pessimism burst his chain in the forgotten forests of the north. Of these theological equalizations I have to speak. Here it's enough to notice that if some small mistake were made in doctrine, huge blunders might be made in human happiness. A sentence phrased wrong about the nature of symbolism would have broken all the best statues in Europe. A slip in definitions might stop all the dances, wither all the Christmas trees, break all the Easter eggs. Doctrines have to be defined within strict limits, even in order that man might enjoy general human liberties. The church has to be careful so that the world can be careless. This is the thrilling romance of orthodoxy. People have fallen into a foolish habit of speaking of orthodoxy as something heavy, humdrum, safe. There never was anything so perilous or so exciting as orthodoxy. It is sanity, and to be sane is more dramatic than to be mad. It's the equilibrium of a man behind madly rushing horses, seeming to stoop this way and to sway that, yet in every attitude having the grace of statuary and the accuracy of arithmetic. The church in its early days went fierce and fast with any war horse, and yet it is utterly unhistoric to say she merely went mad along one idea like vulgar fanaticism. She swerved to the left and to the right so exactly as to avoid enormous obstacles. She left on the one hand the huge bulk of Arianism, buttressed by all the worldly powers to make Christianity too worldly. The next instant, she was swerving to avoid an Orientalism, which would have made the church too unworldly. The church never took the tame course or accepted the conventions. The church is never respectable. It would have been easier to have accepted the earthly power of the Arians. It would have been easy in the Calvinistic 17th century to fall into the bottomless pit of predestination. It's easy to be a madman. It's easy to be a heretic. It's always easy to let the age have its head. The difficult thing is to keep one's own. It's always easy to be a modernist. It's easy to be a snob. To have fallen into any one of those open traps of error and exaggeration, which fashion after fashion and sect after sect set along the historic path of Christendom, that would indeed have been simple. It's always simple to fall. There are an infinity of angles at which a man falls, but only one at which he stands. To have fallen into any one of the fads from Gnosticism to Christian science would indeed have been obvious and tame. But to avoid them all in one whirling adventure, and in my vision, the heavenly chariot flies thundering through the ages, the dull heresies sprawling and prostrate, the wild truth reeling but erect. The beautiful and splendid view of Chesterton in regard to doctrinal orthodoxy should, of course, be engraved in the heart of every Catholic priest and should be an important background to all of his most vital work of preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Whether he does this by the eloquence of his words or by the eloquence of his life. It's exceptionally important for every priest to remember how dangerous it is for a doctor to be careless and let the scalpel slip in the operating theater. But how much more dangerous with eternal consequences is the priest who is careless about his proclamation of God's word in its fullness and its glory. 
Each priest then should pray diligently and ardently to the Holy Spirit to be a suitable instrument of his proclamation of the gospel of Christ. And lay people too should remember that it is not simply a charitable thing to do, but a demand in justice that they pray for their priests. And it's a very fine devotional exercise when we are attending or participating at Mass as lay people to pray that the priest who is to preach to us, who is to proclaim and explain God's word and apply it to the conditions and situations of our lives, might be able to do so in such a way that our own hearts will accept and change and repent on the basis of what is told us. All of us, of course, must recall that we cannot give what we do not have. So the priest himself must be immersed in God's word. This word must be planted in his heart and soul to bear fruit a hundredfold. And it's important that we recollect how we priests must cooperate with God's grace so this heart and soul of ours can become the kind of fertile field in which that seed of God's word can be planted and watered by his grace can bring forth the necessary fruit in our lives and in the lives of others. Each of us, of course, should strive always to see the duty of preaching as a joy and a happiness, though, of course, it involves that which can be burdensome and difficult. Remote preparation and that kind of adequate uh, labor to make certain that our homiletic work is dignifies uh, is dignified as the word of God deserves should be part and parcel of our lives. I often mention to the priests of my diocese that there are millions of dollars spent for just a few minutes or half minutes in uh, advertising products uh, in between, let us say, great television events such as a Super Bowl, uh, Bowl broadcast. But how much more care should be given to the Word of God, not uh, hawking uh, beer or other kinds of uh, uh, gasolines and products that are of ephemeral value, though they might have some worth. How much more of eternal value is that which must be proclaimed by the priest? So then, let each of us and all of us beware that our culture doesn't taint us with those kinds of uh, errors, uh, those kinds of emphases and ideologies and addictions that might uh, in some way debilitate the fullness and the, and the magnificence of our proclaiming God's word like those people painting uh, in those factories, uh, those uh, watch faces, those clock faces, those various other items, uh, thinking that they were accomplishing something great, but actually uh, delivering poison to themselves. Let us be careful that we only give that which is healthy and wholesome, that which can bring us ultimately and finally to that glory, which is our destiny and the destiny of the people uh, whose care, whose salvation has been entrusted to us. You have been listening to In Persona Christi, a retreat with Bishop Fabian Bruskowitz. 
Join us next week at the same time as Bishop Bruskovitz continues his discussion on the life and spirituality of a priest. An act of faith. O oh my God, I firmly believe you are one God in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe your divine Son became man and died for our sins, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe these and all truths which the Holy Catholic Church teaches, because you reveal them who can neither deceive nor be deceived.